Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 39, please. Let's go to the Lord before we look into the Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning, that you would direct us, that you would counsel us, that you would convict us where we need convicting. We thank you that your Holy Spirit, that you by your Holy Spirit are alive and active and well. And so we surrender to you. Accomplish your purpose in us and through us in this time. Give us the will to submit to your word, to your authority, to your guidance and direction. I pray that you would enable me to present your word in such a way as to bring you glory and honor and praise. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been following the life of Joseph and taking some biblical principles that we can apply today. So we're going a few thousand years ago and we're looking and we're seeing exactly how God was working in his life, what God was doing in him and through him, what God was calling him to. And then we're looking and saying, well, now how does that apply to me? What are some biblical principles? Remember that we can't take all the absolute commands from the Old Testament and say, well, that right across the board applies to me. We look at things through the cross. But there are some powerful principles. And today we're going to look at a very clear principle, a very clear subject and a little bit of a longer passage here in Genesis chapter 39. Two weeks ago, we saw that God's plan always supersedes man's plan. Last week, we saw that God's presence is greater than your circumstances. And today, we are going to see, kind of veering off of that topic a little bit, about God's plan and your circumstances, which Joseph speaks a lot about, or the life of Joseph speaks a lot about. Today, we're going to look at a little bit more of a subject, the subject of sin and of obedience. The title of the message is, Sin Shall Not Have Dominion Over You. Sin Shall Not Have Dominion Over You. That is actually taken from Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading there. You can flip there if you like, or you can stay in Genesis chapter 39. But in Romans chapter 6, in verse 11 to 18, all of Romans chapter 6 speaks an awful lot about sin, about being dead to sin, about being freed from sin. It says this, starting in verse 11, and it's coming after mention of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So basically it's saying, in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to new life, we pick up in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead. Indeed, to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace." What then, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Sin shall not have dominion over you. In that passage in Romans, it says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. It says, do not present your members 
as instruments of unrighteousness. It says, sin shall not have dominion over you. It says, we are now set free from sin and we've become slaves of righteousness. The point is made very, very clearly in Romans chapter 6 that we are not to walk or to live in sin, but we are to be victorious over it. We are going to see that, practically speaking, from the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. And we'll see both the temptation, but also his victory over the temptation. And we will see the consequences of, in this case, victory over temptation. Not always the consequences you would expect, and definitely not the consequences to living right that Joseph, I'm sure, anticipated. Genesis chapter 39. We'll start at the end of verse 6. And we will read, it's fairly lengthy, but we will read to the end of the chapter. So at the end of verse 6, it says this, because this doesn't really tie in with verse 6 as much as it does with the rest of the passage. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. If we recap here, Joseph is a slave in Egypt. He is slightly older than 17 years of age. That was when he was taken, thrown into the pit by his brothers and then sold into slavery. Now he's been transferred or he's walked down to Egypt He's been sold to Potiphar. He is a slave in the house of Potiphar, and yet he is a slave in whom much has been entrusted. He has privilege and responsibility. He has respect. He has honor even as a slave. It is good for him to be in the house of Potiphar as a slave to Potiphar. And then we find him in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in the house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice and it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled out and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant who you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard these words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hands all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. Now we've been walking our way through 
the life of Joseph a little bit, taking principles. So I'm not just randomly going to an Old Testament passage. That I didn't just randomly decide this is a good week to speak about sin. But as we work through it, this is part of the narrative. And it is necessary for us to examine it, to look at it, and to examine ourselves in light of the truth that is presented within the Word of God here. Sin shall not have dominion. It shall not have power. It shall not have final authority over the life of the one who is in Jesus Christ. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are fully equipped to be victorious over sin. I am not saying that now from this point on you will live in sinless perfection, but that should be the goal. That should be the aim. To be sinning less and less and less. To be trusting Jesus Christ and operating by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. To resist sin or to flee sin, flee temptation, so that you can resist sin. So that you can walk pleasing before the Lord. Sin shall not have dominion over you. One of the first things that we see from this passage here in regards to Joseph, and also I think in regards to our own life, is that temptation, not sin, but temptation is unavoidable. And I want to explain that. Temptation is not wrong. Sin is wrong. Temptation may lead us there, absolutely, otherwise we wouldn't sin. But the sin is not in the temptation because all of us are tempted and will be tempted. Christ was tempted. You will continue to be tempted. As long as you were on this earth, you will face temptations. Now, they're going to change dramatically through the course of your life. The temptations you have when you're younger may not be the same as when you're older. The temptations that you have when you're married may not be the same as when you're single. They vary. But we never completely get to the point where we can avoid all temptation. They are unavoidable. And they are unavoidable because temptation, and in a sense, sin itself, stalks us. It seeks us. It pursues us. And and it's a bit of a double whammy because we have temptation pursuing us from the outside, but we also have this uh, sin nature, it's called, inside, which goes looking for it. So temptation or sin, particularly temptation, stalks us. We see here in the life of Joseph in verse 7 that his master's wife cast longing eyes upon Joseph. The beginning of the stalking of temptation. She was making eyes at him. And I'm sure it began with a process of flirting, of provocation of Joseph, or trying to provoke him, trying to get him to respond. And when that didn't work, eventually temptation threw itself, literally, at Joseph. Now here in this account, this is sexual temptation. But it could be a temptation in any area. Most likely it was sexual temptation because that was a point of testing for Joseph, an apt point of testing for Joseph. He's young, he's single, and he's good-looking, it says right there. This would have been an area that he could have fallen into easily. Perhaps it was a point, it would have been a point, of unsatisfied desires. Joseph probably didn't have a lot of unsatisfied desires. He had wealth, even though he was a slave. Maybe the the biggest other unsatisfied desire for him would have been freedom, (laughs) But here you have him as a slave, as a valued slave, high in the family. His Potiphar is captain of the guard. So he has prestige, he has position, he has some power, he has been able to attain some wealth. 
What is the one area that he may have an unsatisfied desire? Well, he's a young, single man. And so that unfilled desire may have been sexual, which was why that temptation was brought across his plate in that manner. But regardless of what the temptation is, or even why it may apply to us as a particularly powerful temptation, temptation in one form or another at every point in your life stalks you. The reality is Satan is still prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy you at any age, at any position, at any standing in life. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he wants to take you down a notch. He wants to ruin your reputation. He wants to ruin your testimony. He wants to defeat you and to destroy you. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God, speaking to Cain, says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. Sin's desire is for you. It is to destroy you, but you should rule over it. Your temptation may not be in this area, and the temptation you face may change, keep changing with every stage of life, but they are still there, and they will still stalk you. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, Each of us is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. And we all have desires. Those desires are not necessarily wrong. It's whether we seek to fulfill those desires within the parameters that God has laid out or whether we seek to fulfill those desires outside of the parameters that God has laid out. Temptation is stalking you, but often it is doing so from within based on your own desires. It is enticing you to satisfy a desire outside of God's parameters. So temptation, regardless of your age or your status or any of these things, is unavoidable. It stalks us from within and from without. It stalked Joseph, very obviously here. The second thing we see about temptation is that it is persistent. Temptation can be persistent. Verse 7, Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and says, lie with me, and he refuses. In verse 10, it says, Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day by day, To lie with her, it was persistent. We know that this can be the case because we know our own weakness and we know what temptation we are most prone to fall to and we know exactly how persistent that temptation can be. Hard to escape. We call them our besetting sins. These persistent, nagging, ever-present temptations. It may be sexual, Maybe pride, maybe gossip, maybe anger, maybe envy, desires or lusts. On and on and on the list can go. But they can be persistent. Temptation is persistent. You will never be rid of it. There are people in life who have tried. I'm not sure if you've heard of monasticism, the idea of becoming a monk, restraining yourself, cutting yourself off. And the whole intent with that, actually, was to get to a point where you are no longer under the, the sway of temptation. And so they seal them off from, themselves off from people and, and there are certain desires that they mute. So they, they repress them and over time they're able to gain control of them. But you know what? You may gain control of one, but there's a few others that you never gain control of because it doesn't matter where you're at or what you're doing. And the, and the minute you think, and this was a real problem with the whole monastic movement, <laughs> is the moment they think they actually conquered the temptation, then what do you get? The temptation to pride and arrogance 
self-centeredness. And it, so it doesn't matter what you cut yourself off from. Temptation is unavoidable and it is persistent. The third thing I want you to see about temptation is that it is forceful. Sometimes the longer you resist temptation, the easier it becomes to resist it. And sometimes it works the other way around. The longer you resist it, the more difficult it becomes to resist it. Temptation in any area can be very powerful. In any area. It can or it tries to seduce us, to manipulate its way into our life, to deceive us. And sometimes we think that it must overwhelm us, that it is too powerful, that this temptation can't be resisted. Perhaps on our own it couldn't be resisted. But if you are in Jesus Christ, you are not on your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. In other words, you're not unique in this. You're not alone in this. You're not the first person or the only person that's ever experienced this. But God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able? But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Temptation can be incredibly alluring. It can be incredibly deceptive. It can be incredibly forceful. But God is immeasurably greater. We see here in verse 12 for Joseph, the force of that temptation Verse 11 says, But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Temptation. It can be forceful. I don't know what you're struggling with today. You know your own temptations, your own struggles, your own weaknesses. But I want to encourage you that regardless of how overwhelming it may seem, God is more than able in that area of temptation to give you victory. And that's the beautiful thing that we see as we continue in this passage. Yes, temptation is unavoidable, the temptation part of it. Yes, it stalks us, it is persistent, it is forceful, but victory is attainable. Sometimes we forget that. Even as people who have been in the church for years and have followed Christ for years, we get into either it's, it's such a rut that we think there's no hope or it's a repetition of them and we think, God, I've repeated this so many times. If I could have had victory, I should have had victory by now and so I'm, there's no way I can do this. But I want to encourage you today, whatever it is that you're struggling with and that I'm struggling with, Victory is attainable. Our response to temptation must be predetermined. Our response to temptation must be well-reasoned. And our response to temptation must be aggressive. It is possible to be victorious over temptation. We must start out with a response that is predetermined. If you look here in Joseph. He already had his mind made up. There was no doubt that he had his mind made up. Maybe it was because he knew 
that this temptation was coming. Maybe it was because he knew that this was a, an area that he was going to be tested in or possibly that he was weakened or that he struggled in. But regardless, he already had a response to this temptation in mind. And most of us know the temptation that we struggle with the most. And we need to, we need to determine when that temptation comes, or another, any other ones, but particularly that one that we struggle with the most, when it comes, we need to have a predetermined response to it. Because if you don't have a predetermined response to it, the first thing that you're likely to do is to begin justifying it. It's not really that big. It's not really that major. God's not too concerned about that. Everyone else, whatever the excuse might be, we're prone to make excuses. When temptation comes, we must have a predetermined response. Joseph already had his mind made up. He says, this is right. This is wrong. I am going to do what is right. He knew that sex outside of marriage was wrong, and he was determined not to sin. He was determined not to violate her with that sin. He was determined not to be an affront to God with that sin. He was determined not to ruin his own testimony in that sense or bring shame upon himself in this sin. He determined, I will do what is right. I will not give any room to what is wrong. This is a line that he predetermined he would not cross. Potiphar's wife says in verse 7, lie with me. In verse 8 it says, but he refused. Cut and dry. It's fairly clear. There was no wiggle room here. He didn't even start. It's interesting. He gives an explanation, but he didn't start with the explanation. Has anybody got trapped in words? He starts with, but he refused. The temptation presented itself, but he refused. Won't go there. No hesitation, no justifying. It says in verse 10, he did not heed her. Day after day she came and said, lie with me, and he would not heed her. He didn't even give her his ears, never mind his body. He wouldn't even pay attention. He would not heed her. We need to be determined to do what is right, and the only way that we know what is right is based upon the Word of God, so we need to know the Word of God to know what is right and wrong so that we can do what is right when faced with temptation. It needs to be a predetermined conviction. Joseph wouldn't even give it a moment's consideration. And I want to ask you and challenge you this morning. Are you determined to do what is right? And have you predetermined that when your besetting temptation comes, that you will do what is right? Our response to temptation must be predetermined. Our response to temptation must be well-reasoned. In verse 8 and 9, it says, Starts, it says, he refused. And then he said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. It was well-reasoned in Joseph's mind. It was clear. I have authority and freedom with absolutely everything within this set of parameters, within this, set, this, this box here. And you're not in there. <laughs> you're on the outside of that. That's not within my parameters. That's not within my freedom. Everything else I have freedom in. 
probably why he wasn't tempted and everything else, right? He was tempted in this one area of which it was outside of the parameters for him. It's well-reasoned in his mind. But he continues and he says, because I've been given freedom in everything, I've been given authority in everything, but not with you. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How then can I do this great wickedness? You know what? It would not be considered that great a wickedness today, would it? She was willing. He was young and attractive. Everything that he desired could be in his hands, including her. There probably would not have been immediate consequences. He may have gotten away with this for half a lifetime. We don't know. It was evil. It was a great wickedness. Our response to temptation must be well-reasoned. Sin is a great wickedness. Part of the reasons, or one of the reasons that we fall into sin so easy is we have downplayed the wickedness of wickedness. We've downplayed the wickedness of sin. Sin has become a, a laughing matter. It's become a joke. Nothing is offensive in the sense of terrible to commit against God. Rather than see sin as being wicked, we see sin as something to be played with, something to be toyed with all too often. I'm not trying to beat you over the head. I'm beating myself over the head here. Because how many times in my own life have I taken something and, and excused it as a minor thing? Well, nobody else sees it. It doesn't affect anybody else. Therefore, it doesn't matter. Right or wrong? Pleasing to God or offensive against God? Good or great wickedness? There's not this soft path where, where they can be both. We need to determine what is right and what is wrong. And we need to be determined to do what is right. And we need to understand that what is wrong, according to the word of God, is great wickedness. Acknowledge that sin, that God hates sin. And it's interesting because we see in that same sentence, he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. I think that is first and foremost. Sin is great wickedness because it is an affront against God. It is an offense against God. We forget this. We think of sin as an affront against somebody else, doing somebody else harm or damaging them in some way, some detriment to somebody else, maybe even a detriment to ourself. We fail to realize that sin is first and foremost an offense against God. When we sin, we're usually more concerned about ourselves. Secondly, possibly the other person against whom we have committed a sin, and usually it's rare that we're concerned about our offense against God. And that, that list needs to be changed. So that when we sin, God forbid, when we sin, that we would realize it is an offense against God first and foremost. This is something that we have forgotten and that the Old Testament people knew very well. 
It's interesting, as a matter of fact, if you read through most of them, any one of them that's caught in sin, there's, there's this identifying of it before God, before there is a dealing with it in front of the one against whom they have sinned. Even unbelievers in the Old Testament, Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt, after he realizes how stupid he has been in resisting God, he says in Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, I have sinned against the Lord God and against you, speaking to Moses. Started off with recognizing sin as first an offense against God. David, in regards to his sin with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's when he's confronted by Nathan and recognizes it. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 4, David again says, against you, speaking to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Sin is an offense against the righteousness of God. It is an offense against the righteous law giver. When we are tempted to sin, do we realize against whom we are committing this evil? Joseph's response It was well and it was rightly reasoned. How can I do this great evil? How can I sin against God? Our response to temptation must be aggressive. I'm going to wrap it up with that one. Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and he has resisted. And finally, she says, enough resisting. She catches him alone in the house. And she grabs a hold of his garment. She says, come and lie with me. And what does he do? He runs. He runs. He flees. He forcibly removes himself, even if it meant leaving his outer robe in her grasp. He resists to the point that he's able before this. And when it's no longer a question of just resisting her approaches, he flees from it. That is the response that often we need. This temptation must be responded to aggressively. Do you flee from sin or do you toy with it? We cannot always stay in the face of that temptation. There is a time to leave, to flee it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things, speaking of love of money and greediness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee also youthful lusts. There is a time to stay and resist, and there's a time to flee, and a wise person recognizes the difference. Victory is attainable. But our response must be predetermined. Our response must be well-reasoned. And our response at times must be very aggressive. Next week, we'll look at consequences that are inevitable. Whether we do right or whether we do wrong, there are consequences of it. The saying goes, you can choose your action, but you can't choose your consequences. Sometimes you can choose your consequences by choosing the action, pleasing to God or pleasing to the world. But for today, I want to encourage you. Do not let sin have dominion over you. You shall not Allow sin to have dominion over you. You don't need to. You don't have to. Yes, temptation, it's unavoidable. It'll stalk you. It is persistent. It'll pursue you. It can be forceful, but you know what? Victory is possible 
through the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ in the life of a believer. If you have Christ within you, you can walk in victory. And there are some simple ways to do it, or at least some simple approaches to take in helping you do that. One is have a predetermined response. Have a well-reasoned response, realizing that this is an offense, first and foremost, against God, and that sin is great wickedness. And be as aggressive as you need to be to not enter into that sin, but to leave it as the temptation. God can grant victory regardless of what temptation you're facing and regardless of how many times you have failed and I have failed in that temptation. Praise God that Jesus Christ is is God of victory and not of defeat. He has called us and enabled us to live in that victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Old Testament example and for how clear it is as we look at these examples, particularly in Joseph, of the work that you're doing, of your preserving hand upon him, of your presence. And we see that even in this story, at the end of it, it says that the Lord was with him. We thank you that you are with us, that you have not left us. You have promised never to leave or forsake, never to abandon your children. We thank you even in the midst of temptation that you are still a powerful God, the powerful God who is here, is real and desires and delights to intervene in our affairs. We thank you that even when we fall, your grace is sufficient to wash us and to cleanse us and to purify us again. We thank you that you are the mediator. Jesus Christ, that you have that authority that you come before God the Father and you lift us up in our broken state, in our failed state, and you say, this one I have purchased, I have redeemed, I have loved. This one in standing is innocent and pure and clean. And I make them once again, in practice, innocent and pure and clean. God, help us because of the victory of Jesus Christ to continue to live pure, innocent, clean before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.